Welcome to Wine Week on the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, a.k.a. the Amateur Gourmet. You know, wine is a subject that's intimidating to a lot of people. It's intimidating to me. I've been drinking it since I've been 21. I'm 43, so it's been a while. And I still feel overwhelmed by the subject, which is why I wanted to make this week's episode all about wine. And today's featured guest is Elle Clifford. She's the host of the podcast, The Wine Situation, on which I was once a guest. And she's also a certified sommelier. She took a test, like a really complicated test, and passed it. So I invited her on to explain wine to all of us. But before we get to her, I also invited on Mike Stone, who's the tasting room manager at Nicholson Ranch Winery in Sonoma and the host of the Tall Mike Wine Podcast to talk to us all about his interest in wine. So... Let's start with Mike Stone. Here he is in our talk about wine. All right, Mike. Well, uh, <laughs> thanks for doing uh, my podcast. It's so nice to finally meet you. Yes, meeting in person now after many, many, many years of me reading your blog, uh, following your uh, your career. Oh, really. thank you. Well, yeah. I know that I know I've been following you too, and so I know that you are uh, Mike Wine Guy, right? That's your name. Tall Mike Wine. Tall Mike Wine, and so that's how I think of you. But but you work at Nicholson Winery in Sonoma, is that correct? Nicholson Ranch, Ranch. And so, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Because I'm not quite sure. If you look up <laughs> Nicholson Winery, you'll find Nicholson Ranch and Nicholson Vineyards, and those are okay. two different wineries in California. Oh, okay. and once in a while, once in a while, somebody will come into Nicholson Ranch and say we have a reservation. I'll say I don't, I don't see a reservation here. Let me look at your phone. <laughs> Oh, you have a reservation at Nicholson Vineyards, and they're down in like San Luis Obispo. Oh, that's funny. Okay, which is a few hours away from Sonoma. What was your original question? <laughs> yeah, what, can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Nicholson Ranch? All right, Nicholson Ranch is a small winery. We only produce about five thousand cases of wine a year. Okay, and at small wineries, there's a small staff, and we all get to wear many hats. So I am the tasting room manager, as well as the Get this title. I'm the guest services manager. Oh, okay. So you probably have to deal with a lot of guests who might have, you know, a variety of issues or problems or concerns, or are most people pretty well behaved? Uh, most people are pretty well behaved. Okay. The, you haven't met tasting, my mother yet. <laughs> well, I, I hope she one day. I hope she wants to pose for a picture with me. Oh, she will. She'll be very excited. She thinks I'm a celebrity. <laughs> so, okay. So you are the tasting room manager. Now, my first immediate um, reaction to that. I'm sure you get this all the time is I immediately thought of the movie Sideways mm-hmm. and um, Paul Giamatti in the tasting room of a winery where he dumps the whole thing over his head that everyone spits into. Do you remember that scene? I do. I've never seen that happen. Okay. But can you tell us a little bit? So now is it your job? Are you sort of the intermediary between the winery and the customer and you're trying to showcase the wines that they could potentially buy and bring home? Is that the idea? So I manage a staff, a small staff of people in the tasting room. And I am also one of those people that is pouring wine for people. So I'm basically wrangling the staff, uh, assigning them people to pour for, making sure, you know, they're pouring the right wines, making sure the menus are up to date. People come into the winery. Right now we have a menu of five different wines and we have lots to tell you about each wine. And it's basically my job to make it all run smoothly. Well, as a starting point, and I think I emailed you a little bit about this. um, I thought I would ask you about getting into wine and how this all started for you, because I believe you began your career as a DJ, correct? I did. I did. I I got out of high school in uh, 1982 
And I went to a vocational school and learned how to push buttons and talk at the same time. Okay. That's a good And then skill. I went off onto a uh, radio career where I started out at the age of 19 on the coast of Washington State, which is where I'm from. Okay. In a very small town that would become famous years later as Kurt Cobain's hometown. What's it called? Aberdeen, Washington. Okay. And then uh, I, I made my way across the state at some point to eastern Washington, and little did I know it, there were wineries there and vineyards there. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens to you when you move to an area where there are wineries. You, you were at work one day, minding your own business, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, we're all going wine tasting this weekend. You should come. <laughs> and when it happens the first time, you sort of roll your eyes like, who are these people? Uh, but you know, I was cajoled into, into tagging along and I, I, I didn't really get it at first. I was one of those people who now comes into my tasting room and says, um, I don't know anything about wine. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> and people make that, people feel like they have to make that confession to me. I don't know why that is as mm -hmm. if I'm some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of winery God or, or I'm the gatekeeper and they, they right. have to say, I don't know anything. And I usually say, well, I know some stuff and I'll tell it to you and then you'll know some stuff. And it's all pretty simple, really. Uh, the, the bottom line is I'm going to pour some wine for you and I'm going to tell you all about it. But at the end of the day, what I want to know is, do you like it? Mm -hmm. And maybe you might want to take a bottle or two home because that's my job is to sell wine. Uh, I mean, I think, I think for me, the starting point of feeling insecure is not so much to whether or not I like a wine and how it tastes because I know pretty much like I'm pretty open-minded. I, I like all kinds of wines. Like I, I like natural wine. I like old school wines and all that kind of stuff. It's more about being able to be discerning and to know, okay, this wine that I'm drinking is some crappy wine from the gas station. This wine that I'm drinking was, you know, hand, from hand-picked grapes off of old vineyard in France that began in the 1700s. Like, I mean, I, I think that's where I feel insecure is that being able to distinguish greatness from mediocrity. Right. Well, I mean, that takes a lot of practice and you have to be exposed to a lot of different wines. And that just takes time. It's just mm -hmm. like with anything. Um, if you really want to know, then you have to devote time to it. And in the case of wine, it's nice because you get to drink some nice wine. And as I found out when I decided wine was cool, you get yeah. to hang out with some different people. Uh, I first felt like when I was visiting those wineries back in the Yakima Valley of Washington State, that mm -hmm. I was meeting a different sort of person. And I sort of felt like I might be meeting my tribe. Mm -hmm. uh, these were people that were, and I was in my twenties, you know, I was the guy who drank beer, watched a lot of TV. Uh, and, and then I, I encountered a lot of people who read more books and, and talked about, you know, film and, and, you know, and they, they used that word, that word film. <laughs> right. So, you know, you're talking to different people yeah. and, and plus the wine was interesting and there's so much to just go off and study when it comes to wine. And that's, that's what appeals to me about it is that you get to study art and science and geography and geology and history. You know, when you study European wine, you study lots and lots of history because there are areas of those countries that, well, there's an area between France and Germany where the border has moved back and forth, back and forth over the mm -hmm. last 500 years or so. And that kind of stuff is fascinating. And again, at the end of the day, if you develop your palate, you start to realize, oh, I like this. Oh, I like that. Oh, I can't wait to try that because I think I know a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. And then it's, it's, there's a lot of great payoff. And then you start meeting other people who have different ideas about wine and that's fun. So it's got a, it's got a huge and very broad 
culture to it. And that's what drew me into it. So I started visiting wineries on my own way back then. And eventually started seeking out the wine people. And then my radio career took me to Spokane, Washington, Mm -hmm. where I knew a guy, I I met a guy, I was looking for wine tastings. And I met a guy who owned a wine shop where he had tastings every Saturday afternoon. And I just started hanging out there. And pretty soon I got to know this guy, John, who's Spokane's wine guru. Uh, His name is John Allen. He owns a store called Vino. Okay. And pretty soon John and I became friends and he started taking me to industry events as just an amateur guy who, uh, you know, knew some stuff about wine and liked talking about it. And then eventually that led to meeting some people in the industry and then meeting some restaurant people. Now this is key. Uh, Way before I started working in the tasting room at Nicholson Ranch, I worked in restaurants as a wine guy for about 20 years. Okay. And I transitioned into that kind of by accident when I was in Spokane, and I met a few restaurant people who were impressed with my ability to talk about wine. And of course, I had this, you know, this advantage on a lot of people where I was in radio and had been in radio for 15 years. I was just about to say, yeah, your voice is sort of your secret weapon in terms of being an authority. Well, it's not just the voice. It's also the ability to take in a lots lots of information and then spitting out a soundbite that's yeah. 30 seconds long. Sure. You know, oh, I've read a whole bunch about this wine, and now I'm going to tell you what you need to know. And that's what you do on radio, right? right. No matter if you're talking about a musician or current events, you know, my training in radio uh, over, the, over those many years uh, got me to the point where when it came to wine, I could very succinctly tell people lots of little things about wine. Mm-hmm. And, of course, using my voice and different... Uh, you know, different cadences and different temperies in my voice. And that eventually offered, uh, led to a job offer at a restaurant in Spokane. This woman, uh, Sylvia, who owned a restaurant there, she and I were sort of friends. And one day she said, you know, you know so much about wine and you love talking about it. Why don't you ever talk about it on the radio? And I said, well, wine doesn't really work on the radio because you can't, you're not tasting it. You're not watching me. I'm not watching you. You know, you're just listening to my voice coming out of a speaker. And I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was on NPR, you know, I was working at a, at a, at a, at a rock station. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm all of a sudden saying, well, this weekend I was in the wine country and I was tasting some delicious <laughs> Cabernet Sauvignon and, you know, the wine is delicious and it's rich, uh, you know, all the flavors talking pretty soon. You sound like a big fat snob when your voice is just this disembodied voice coming out of the radio. You just sound like a snobby guy. And I, uh-huh. so I, I the wine thing was just, just for me. And then my friend Sylvia said, you know, I think you'd have fun hanging out behind the wine bar at my restaurant on the weekends. And I said, "Uh, you know, I don't know anything about restaurants. I've never worked in a restaurant. She said, well, you eat in restaurants all the time and you love food. We talk about food all the time. And I said, yes, I love restaurants and I love food. And she said, well, I can teach you what you need to know about how restaurants run. I just think you should come hang out and talk to people and you might think it's fun. And I did. And I was hooked. And eventually radio stopped being as fun as it used to be. And I decided to take a little hiatus from radio in Spokane in 1998. And that hiatus continues to this day. (laughs) So in terms of retention, because as you're telling your story and talking about going to these events and being an amateur, of which I know something about, this is the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. So I love that you started as an amateur too, because I I think amateur is also a state of mind. It's sort of like you're constantly learning, you're constantly growing. But for me, it's sort of about, I know that I've tasted a wide variety of wines now over my many years, but I don't 
retain the information about them that like I mean I don't have that mental catalog of oh yes the 2007 you know Shiraz is is a great year I mean I don't remember any of that so how do you yeah, retain that, that, all that that kind of stuff is sort of uh I guess you could say it's it's on the periphery of of people who know wine there are people you can say you know, what were the good years in this region? And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, some of them, if you're into wine, you can say, oh, well, I know in the Napa Valley, they had a great year in 2013 for the Cabernets. And in 2011, it was a challenging year. It was colder and a little bit rainy before harvest. Uh, and if you're into wine, if you're into wine as much, you know, if you work in a restaurant, uh, then you you're in, you encounter all that information and some of it sticks, but it doesn't stick with me. I mean, I mm -hmm. can tell you what some good years were in some regions where I appreciate the wines, but you can always look that stuff up if you need to know. I mean, mm -hmm. when I first started, it was always, you had to go find a book or a magazine and now, and now we have the internet. Yeah. And you even have apps and that's now. Just, yeah. Like just amazing. Yes. The Vino apps. is pretty cool. Like that you can kind of just take a picture of a bottle of wine and it immediately tells, gives you information. Right. Um, yeah. But I was going to ask you in terms of like the gateway wine or the glass that changed the, your life. I mean, was there a specific wine that you remember trying or experiencing that blew your mind the first time? I love this it? because I ask the same question on my <laughs> podcast. Oh, the nice. Tall Mike Wine Podcast. Yes. Everyone should listen to it. And uh, I would have to say, so we're going to go back to Washington State, which is mm -hmm. where wine first started to mean something to me. And I think there was a wine uh, that I tasted one night, and it was a Washington wine, and I was out to dinner with some friends, and I just started to really sink into this wine. It was really speaking to me. And I was to that point where I could tell like, oh, this is this is a good one. Or somebody would say, oh, this is a really good one. And you, you get yourself ready for that. Mm -hmm. It was a winery. Uh, it was a wine from the winery in Walla Walla, Washington called Woodward Canyon. Okay. And uh, they still make this wine every year. It's called their dedication series, Old Vines Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think the one that I had was from 1995. And I would have been sipping it sometime in probably 1999 or 2000 hmm. uh, when I was just kind of, you know, still dabbling in wine. And uh, trying to figure out, you know, what it meant to me. And like I said, that whole restaurant thing happened by accident. And eventually I got another restaurant job and then I got a management job in restaurants. Um, the guys that hired me to be a manager was funny. I said, you guys, I don't understand why you want me to be the manager. I'm a disc jockey <laughs> and I'm going to go back to radio, uh, you know, in, in six months or something. And I, I ended up staying at that restaurant job for about three years, learned a lot. And then I was like, Okay, now I'm in the restaurant business. What am I doing in Spokane, Washington? I need to go somewhere where the restaurant business is cool. Mm -hmm. So I moved uh, down here to the Bay Area and settled in Oakland and worked in uh, restaurants in San Francisco. Wow. And that was like, wow, change of pace. You know, cool. then I was in the world of fine dining, wearing a suit to work every night, uh, looking over a 400 bottle wine list and training the staff about wines of different regions of the world. And at the same time, secretly, I was training myself. Um, which was pretty cool. And then for many years after that, I was kind of a wine guy for hire all over the Bay Area here. And then the way I ended up at Nicholson Ranch was sort of by accident again. Mm -hmm. I was in between restaurant jobs about five years ago. And a friend of mine who I knew from restaurants was working at Nicholson Ranch. And he, he called me up and said, hey, I, uh, you're not doing anything right now. I'm like, no, I'm, wait, I'm in between. I'm on the beach. I'm relaxing. <laughs> he said, well, I need a guy on Saturdays in my tasting room. And I think you could be that guy. And I said, oh, 
a winery. I hadn't really thought about that. So I went up and uh, and checked it out and worked and started working on Saturdays in the tasting room. And then I picked up Sundays and picked up Mondays and then pretty soon made myself indispensable. Now, when you're working in a tasting room like that, it, it's a certain number of bottles that you are pouring for people, I imagine, that change year to year. But or is it basically the same wines that you're describing to people each time they come in? I mean, it's because it's not the same as being in a restaurant where you have a wine list, as you said, with 400 bottles on it. These are the right. same wines. So how do you keep it interesting for yourself. Well, that's that's that goes back to my radio days. Yeah. Uh, and I tell my staff this, I say, we have the same tasting menu every single day. Uh-huh. Uh, the wines we pour at Nicholson Ranch uh, are great. They're all grown on the property. The property is only 40 acres. It's in the southeastern corner of Sonoma County, almost on the Napa County line. And it's mostly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And You know, I I tell the staff, there's five wines on the list and they're going to be the same five wines tomorrow. And you're going to talk to people all day. You might encounter, you know, 10 or 15 groups over the course of a day. And really our job is to come up with clever ways to say the same things over and over and over again. And that was the same thing I did when I was on the radio. You know, here comes the Madonna record again. I have to say the same thing, but in order to keep it fresh for me and for somebody who might've heard it, uh, three hours ago, mm-hmm. I got to say, I got to say it just a little bit differently. And, and it's a nice, it's a mental exercise is what it is. And it's, it, and it's all performance. You know, when people come in, it's showtime and we're on the stage. In terms of coming into a winery for a tasting, I mean, I think the conception of like going wine tasting is basically like, I think the popular conception is that you're just going for, for like this day of drinking from place to place and getting schnockers, basically. I think, I think a lot of people, I think who are not in the wine world when they talk about wine tasting are talking about that. But in terms of someone who's seriously going wine tasting, is it really about going from winery to winery and seeing if you click with a certain bottle and then buying a case of that bottle? Is that the idea that you're buying at a discount or you're get you're buying a lot of something or what's the idea behind it? Most people that we see, and we do see people that are just up there to get a buzz yeah. and have fun. And at the end of the tasting, when you say, would you like to take any of these bottles with you? They're like, the, the, the line I hear the most is, oh, we're good. <laughs> like get away from me i don't want to yeah. buy any of this wine sure i just spent money to taste it all and i'm i'm happy to be buzzed uh but most people come and they they purchase i don't know i guess the average purchase is probably uh four or five bottles you know okay. that people people i mean there are people and there are wineries and we're in sonoma so we're not selling super expensive wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go over into the napa side of things then you get to the wines that are very expensive and the people that come there have a lot of money and they might be buying cases of wine. And we sell the occasional case of wine. Somebody says, hey, we're, we really love this wine. It's all about how much money do they have and how, how important is wine to them? Mm-hmm. And then how well have you sold the wine to them? So you sell the occasional case of wine, but it's, it's pretty, that's pretty rare, actually. Most people buy a bottle or two or, you know, we have a deal where if you buy four bottles, we waive a tasting fee. So if they say they want to buy two or three, I'll say, you should buy that fourth bottle because that'll save you $50. Okay. Got it. So it's sort of helping people make good decisions about their wine yeah. purchases. Uh, yeah. It's just like any anything where you go to buy something. I'm the facilitator. I want them to have a good time. I want them to understand what our wine is and how it is unique in the world of wine, what makes it special. And there's a bunch of different things at Nicholson Ranch that are very unique to wineries all around us. Hmm. And my job is to convey that. 
And uh, yeah, hopefully people like the wine and want to buy some and, and even better sign up for our wine club, which then, then they're basically on the inside, they're, they're family at that point. The only obligation is they have to continue buying wine from us on a schedule, mm-hmm. but we give them a discount on that wine. So that's kind of a cool thing. Would you like to know more about the Nicholson Ranch Wine Club, Adam? Uh, sure. Tell me more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, but I was going to say that this flew by because I, I told you we were going to do 15 minutes. We're already at 20. Um, but before we go, I, I think a f- good final question that I'm actually curious to hear your answer is like, just as a suggestion of a wine that we can go out and look for that you're excited about that maybe isn't Nicholson Ranch wine, but just something that maybe the average wine drinker wouldn't know to go look for or, or, or a bottle or type or grape or varietal that, that you've discovered over the years that um, you're excited about? Well, I'm sipping wine right now from Australia, and I have found that I like the wines from the, uh, the South Australia region. That's their big region, and they've got several little uh, sub-regions within South Australia. This wine here is from an area called the McLaren Vale, and it's a Shiraz. Okay. Um, and here's the thing about Shiraz. It's the same grape that we call Syrah. Mm, okay. The Australians just came up with a different name for it. I'm a big fan of these wines. They tend to be, uh, they tend to make a statement and you can find some pretty good ones for not a lot of money. So there's, mm-hmm. there's uh, McLaren Vale and the Barossa Valley and the Clare Valley. I'm a big fan of those wines. Um, I also think a lot of the wines from Washington state are, they really deliver on value. I forgot to mention when you mentioned Walla Walla, my husband's family is from Bellingham, Washington. I knew that. Yeah. And his parents' best friends or some of their closest friends have a winery in Walla Walla called Dunham Cellars. And, oh, uh, Dunham. Yeah. And they often, uh, yeah, they give us some wine every year. So I visited there back, back in November. I went up to Walla Walla and did a whole uh, week there. Oh, you probably met their son, John. I think he's the one that is, uh, works there. I don't think I met him, but I met the uh, the woman, the matriarch of the family. Uh, okay, Cheryl? I believe so. I think I met yeah, Cheryl. That's so funny. Okay, well, I know them very well, and that's some delicious wine, so you're right about Washington State. Well, Mike, thank you so much for doing um, my podcast, and I know that I promised to come on your podcast, so let's pick a date and do it, and I'll tell all my listeners to listen to me talk about wine on your show. Thank you so much. It'd be, it'd be wonderful to have you. Uh, we'll, we'll pick a date and we'll do it soon. And remind everyone, what is your podcast called? It's the Tall Mike Wine Podcast. Available wherever podcasts are found. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Mike, and have a great rest of your day. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Bye. All right. And now it's time for our conversation with the host of The Wine Situation and certified sommelier, L. Clifford. All right, Elle. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's nice to see you again. You too. Yeah. We now have two mutual friends, even though they've like both deserted us for cities other than LA. Well, I know Sean deserted us, who's the co-host of your podcast, but who else deserted us? Eve, who you, you met her, you met her out of, you met her in uh, New Orleans, Roxy and or Eve, uh, Another person oh, goes- yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I forgot about that. Yeah. When I was in New Orleans, I went to a, an amazing restaurant called Margie's Grill. And our server was this awesome woman named Eve. Yeah, she's 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 good people. But yeah, she left. Uh, well, I guess she left slightly before pandemic. But yeah. And I promised her I would send her a Magpie's ice cream cake. And then when I got back, I went on the Magpie's website and they didn't have an option to send an ice cream cake. Maybe I have to go there in person, though. <laughs> New Orleans field trip. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll carry one on the plane. Well, um, so the reason, and I mean, there's many reasons I wanted to have you on, but one of the main reasons is that I'm now doing these podcasts where I choose a single subject, and this week's subject is wine, and of all the people I know who know about <laughs> wine, I feel like you're number one on the list, not only because you host a podcast called The Wine Situation, but also because you are, correct me if I'm wrong, a master sommelier? Oh, oh no, I wish I was. Okay, so... um. I have a diploma from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, which is like the precursor to becoming a master of wine. And I am a certified sommelier with quartermaster sommeliers. Okay. So you're a certified sommelier, which is still nothing to shake a stick at. I mean, you took tests. I mean, I think when I saw you last time when we recorded, you had just taken a test, right? Yeah. Well, I just gotten the results from... So the diploma is like a... If you pass all your tests in the first time, it's like a two-year process if you pass everything on the first time and like the there's six units to it and unit three is like what everyone calls the monster unit because it's just either there's like the viticulture vinification unit there's the business unit there's the fortified unit wine the the sparkling wine unit there's the you have to write a research paper and then there's just the still wines of the world which is like uh every single wine on earth um you need to know about because it's only like you have to taste uh you have to blind taste 12 wines and then uh, there's like five essay questions, but that's five out of like all the wines of the world. So you need to be prepared for like everything. So it's just like terrible. And I had just gotten the news that day that I passed it. So I was like, oh my God. That's incredible. Though. I mean, like, okay, so do you remember, for example, like on that test, like which wine of the world or which, what were some of the wines of the world you were asked to talk about? Oh my God. I unfortunately remember it like, like uh, too much. Um, So they, they give you like seven questions. One is compulsory and then you can pick four out of the last, uh, out of the rest of them and, or no, seven questions. I can't do math. <laughs> but <laughs> I, yeah, the compulsory question was like, basically Viognier, tell us everything about Viognier. That's 50% of the question. And then the rest of it is for 25% talk about Viognier in, uh, in the Condrieu version, uh, region of Northern Rhone and 25% about how it's used in, in the Languedoc-Roussillon region of the, which is the South of France, which is like, I was like, I don't know shit about what they do with the Viognier in the south of France, but they mostly blend stuff. So let me write some stuff about climate here. Yeah. And then there was like a question about Sangiovese-based wines in Tuscany and the different quality levels of them. Oh, my God. This there is was, insane. So how do a question you, about so, Switzerland that nobody chose to answer. <laughs> um, I remember when I studied for the SATs, there were like little tricks, like, you know, if you get a math question, do blah, 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 blah. But I mean, with something like this, it's it's... I, I would guess you have to have a genuine curiosity about these things anyway. Like you cared about this stuff anyway. So it was somewhere in your brain to begin with, or did you cram? Like, did you just have to cram a ton of information in your brain? I mean, it's for that particular unit, You there's like 12, like once a week, like classes. And then they give you like three months to study. So wow. it's just like a lot of reading. And then like one of the more, like kind of like the SATs, like you, you have to learn because they're essay questions and you have to learn to take so this is the difference between the diploma and like the the sommelier program, the court of sommeliers, because they're very much like kind of want quick answers, like very trivia-like. And this, they want you to take like all your information and be able to like formulate, you know, a four-page handwritten essay about it. So yeah, like you kind of- And this was writing. the certification for the sommelier designation? Well, this was the, the for the diploma. So, so, the, okay. so getting the certified sommelier is very- different process because like that's the second level of the quartermaster sommeliers and that's like a one-day thing and you go and you like you do your blind tasting there's four wines you blind taste um and then you do your uh tests 
which which is written, but it's more like shorter, shorter questions. And then the scariest part of that test is the service portion where you have to like go and like pretend to be, you have to serve a master sommelier and you have to like go and be like opening sparkling wine without making a noise and like pouring flights of wine <laughs> at wall while they're like, they're like, so I'm interested in scotch. What can you tell me? I'm like, they're answering you, asking you all these questions. Oh my God. Okay. So maybe we'll rewind the tape a little bit and, and go back to the very beginning for you in terms of your interest in wine and how this all began for you. Oh, Wow. It was like a weird progression. I mean, I think the first time I was really interested in wine was like, oh, this is something. Well, I've always been like a food person. I was like, you know, the kid growing up, like reading cookbooks and stuff and Mm -hmm. baking. And then in college, because because I was an acting major, I was like, I better learn how to wait tables before I graduate and move (laughs) to New York. (laughs) Those two things go together very often. Wait, so where did you grow up? Uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Got yeah. It. So then you moved to New York after that? No, no, no. I, I did it. Well, so I, I was like when I was in college, which I was, um, I started at U Chicago and then I ended at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Okay. So yeah, I was like, when I graduate with, with this, all this precious, very useful acting major, I, um, <laughs> I'm going to move either to New York or LA because that's where one goes when acts. Yeah. So I got a job at a restaurant and waiting tables. And like, that was the first time I'd had, you know, every so often they'd change up the wines there and like the wine rep would come in and like we'd sit down and he'd like you know pour them for us and tell us about them and I mean it wasn't even close to fancy stuff like I think the fanciest thing on the menu was like some La Crema or something like but it was the first time I tasted like you know like three different Chardonnays side by side and I was like wow these are all so different this is really Uh interesting so that was the first time it like sparked my interest but I still I, I didn't really drink very much I didn't then I moved to LA and I like you know, I didn't know anyone. I didn't go out very much and I wasn't like sitting at home drinking, but I kind of started reading about wine and then uh, I'll try and make this short. <laughs> I <laughs> No, it's interesting to me. I, I ended up starting like a food blog that led to some food writing jobs, which I was, I was writing for the site called Hello Giggles. It's like a lifestyle. I was doing like a once a week cook it, like column where I reviewed cookbooks and it got okay. like, you know, that's a lot of work, like <laughs> reviewing a whole cookbook every week. So sometimes I was, doing, I got really into cocktails and like uh-huh. I was reading cocktail books. It's like a lot faster to taste test for much cocktails. Than to, so that that's so then I got really into cocktails for a while, and that kind of like led me all back to wine again. Um, and then I was hanging out at this place called Bar Covell, and I met a sommelier yeah. there who kind of like he kind of was the person who like saw that I had a genuine interest in it. And was like, hey, this is something you could, um, you know, if you're really interested in it, you should, you know, think about doing something with it. So so then I started like studying. I I think that's when I first signed up for a wine spirit education trust class. And yeah, so it's just kind of like gradually built over time. And in terms of like your natural interests, because like, I feel like wine encompasses so much. It encompasses geography. It encompasses history. It encompasses like just storytelling in general. Like, yeah. does, so like what, what are the facets of, of like wine that interest you the most? Oh God. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it kind of all like, I, I do like to geek out on like the science stuff uh, about it sometimes. Like I'm, currently working on a two-part piece on melolactic fermentation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. For some, yeah. Uh, so I, I think sometimes... So science is a little bit... I mean, I'm curious. I mean, this is a good segue. Like in the current moment that we're in, it feels like natural wine is of the moment. And I actually, I have a friend, Jonathan, who always buys natural wine. It's like almost like a point of pride for him. But I'll still, personally, like I, I enjoy it, but like I'll still get like old school wines and yeah. stuff like that. But um, I recently ordered wine from Psychic Wines in LA, which is all natural wine. Yeah, I think. yeah, I've shot there. 
And so I got a bunch of natural wines. But I'm curious for you, because when you talked about lacto fermentation, melolactic is that is that for natural wine? Is that what you're talking about? Um. So well, it's um. Okay. So in wine, when they make wine, you get the grapes and you smush them up, and uh, you the, the first fermentation creates alcohol, right? And then there's something where bacteria come in and they eat up all the malic acid in wine and make lactic acid. That's why they call it malolactic. And it can happen naturally, just ambient bacteria in the air, but also uh, some some winemakers choose to uh, inoculate with like store, store-bought bacteria they add in there to make it happen. Because you know, with some wines, if it doesn't happen, like then bad things happen, uh, like, uh, spoilage, uh, bacteria come in and, and yeah. Uh, so, so know. that malolactic, that's that second stage of fermentation is just the normal process of making wine or is that a special process? It, it's like a, it's a, not all wines, like most reds undergo it because it, malic acid is kind of like harsh and bitter and lactic acid is like a little more like, uh, gives you a smoother mouthfeel and, um, uh, in white wines, it's sometimes like if you drink a, if you drink a buttery Chardonnay is probably, yeah. that's probably from Malik, but you don't, if it happens in reds, you don't, you don't taste the butter. Got it. So the main difference between natural wine and all the other wines is just that natural wine, they're not introducing like, chem, like, like factory chemicals. Right. Or natural wine, there's no like technical definition for it, but natural wine is sort of like, they say nothing added, nothing taken. So like, and here's my thing with natural water. <laughs> yeah. There are many, many, I've had many, many uh, excellent, delicious, well-made, stable, natural wine. And then I've had natural wines that are uh, just, uh, it's just, a, it's a flawed, I'm sorry, but it's a flawed wine. And you can't be like, oh, that's just like, it's, it's like, well, sure, you can sell food that's gone bad too, and say it's natural <laughs> food, but like, like this wine needs help. <laughs> How do you tell if a, if a natural wine is not good? Like what, what what's the difference? The, for me, the thing I can't handle in natural wine, um, there's the, the one particular thing that some people actually, I don't know, some people say they like it, it's, it's called mouse. When you, when you drink and you can't smell it, and you, but when you drink the wine, uh, you've probably had one like this. You take a sip, you swallow, and then all of a sudden you feel this like, like there's this weird rodent, like this weird aftertaste of the, of the just, is, I mean, it smells like a rodent falling out of your throat. <laughs> Really? Okay. Like funky, like, like yeah. mousy. Mousy, like a yeah. hamster's cage or something. Exactly, yeah. There, there are some natural wines that, if they are not stable, will do that. And some of them, and that the problem with some natural wines is like there's bottle variability. Like they'll bottle it, it tastes fine, and then that develops. So no, but it, I, oh, this is not natural wine. People are going to hate me. Um, <laughs> I'm all for not messing with your wine too much, but I also think that just a judicious touch. And there are a lot of natural winemakers that do do this. And even the raw wine fest, which I think just happened in LA, but I was out of town. So I, sadly I missed it. They have like, they have like a level of sulfur you can add, but just like a tiny touch of sulfur can sometimes keep these things from like happening. And there's more sulfur in like raisins than there is in most wines. So is the so philosophy like, behind natural wine that it's healthier because they don't add anything or is it that it tastes better? I think it's... I don't even know. Sometimes, sometimes I just feel like they're like, it's natural, so it's better. <laughs> For some people, I think it's like, they're like, you know, let's let these grapes speak their truth. Like, <laughs> let's not mess with this. Um, right, right. So it's not been altered in some way. It's like, yeah, to tell the truth, I mean, wine. there are a lot of like, you know, if you go to the grocery store, most of the wine you get there is so played with and so like manipulated. And the things like when we took the, you know, the winemaking course in my, in my studies, like, 
the amount of things they do to wine to to acidify, to deacidify, just all stuff added, stuff taken away, mega purple, like so much stuff they can do to your wine that like by the time you get it, and, and they're doing that to make it, I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you go to the store and you want a, a, a Coke and it doesn't taste like Coke, you're going to be mad. So like, you know, freaking my least favorite wine on earth, Apothic, they're like, let's make this taste like Apothic. And so they just like play, I, well, I don't know what they do at Apothic. Maybe they're, maybe they're all natural there. I don't know. But, but no, like, but it's a good comparison to Coca-Cola because I feel like it's like you can buy like an all natural cola drink, but if you're you don't know what it's going to taste like, right? Yeah, exactly. So in terms of your passions, I mean, separate from your education, just in terms of the wines that get you excited, what are those wines? Oh my God. It changes all the time. Like a lot of times yeah. it changes, like depending on like whatever columns I'm writing probably is what I'm drinking, um, which this month means I've been reviewing kosher wine. So that, that I would not say that is necessarily my passion, but I'm not even Jewish. But. <laughs> I've never even ordered kosher wine and I'm, I am Jewish. Okay. Well, I'll send you a, a link to this, to, to the article when it comes out and I'll, you'll have some. Okay. Where did you write it for in case people want to find it? Oh, I'm, well, it's not out yet. I'm working on it. It's for Delectable. Um, okay. That's my main, I, I do like two pieces a month for them. Um, but God, what am I passionate about? <sighs> I really, I like, I have a real, a real sweet spot for rosés from Tavel. Um, Tavel? Where's Tavel? It's in the Southern Rhone. Okay. And they do really, they're really deep colored rosés. Um, uh-huh. They're like, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like it's very trendy to like really pale rosés from Provence that almost tastes like white wine. And I'm like, I like a really deep party rosé. Mm-hmm. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. What was your gateway? I mean, like what, what, were, what were some of the wines that you had at the beginning that you were like, wow, okay. Like I'm, this is exactly what I wanted or this is leading me down a career path that I didn't expect. Oh my gosh. Okay. I wish I had like a better, I feel like almost every wine person I know has an answer. They're like, this is the time that I tasted this wine and it made me, Yeah. and I don't know that I had that for like regular, I do have, I have a sparkling wine moment. Um, okay. I never really, I don't know. I feel like in general, there's a lot of like, just like, you know, store-bought sparkling wine out there that doesn't really, I never was into it. And then I, there used to be, well, it happened two years in a row and then pandemic happened. So who knows if it'll ever happen again. There was a big sparkling wine um, event in Los Angeles called Effervescence. And um, I was writing about it. <laughs> that was like my first uh, actual job for uh, Delectable, actually. So I was taking this master class. And so we were tasting like, so sparkling wine, champagne, champagne houses all have, maybe not all, but pretty much all of them have like what they call the tete de cuvee, which is like their top, like, so Dom Perignon is a tete de cuvee. Uh, Cristal is a tete de rhetorer. They're sort of, there's top wine. And so this is the first time I'd tasted like the, the fancy sparkling wine. Yeah. And it was actually, it was uh, Bollinger or Bollinger. I don't, I don't even see, I'm a wine person. And sometimes I'm like, I'm, I'm, I hear people pronounce it, although I'm probably saying it. <laughs> Just get Google Translate to tell yeah. you and it'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, I tasted Cristal and it was, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then they poured the tete de from Bollinger, um, which is called, uh, <laughs> Le, le, uh, le Grand Anne, and I was just like, I did not know. I was like, this tastes like jam and slightly burnt toast and and the texture and like everything. I was like, oh my God, sparkling wine's amazing. Huh, okay. And that was the first time I had a sparkling wine that I was like, wow, okay, sparkling wine is, is like worth drinking and worth thinking. So when you described it just now, it makes me think about like one of the main skill sets of a sommelier, which it's probably, and it probably is tied to being an actor, I would imagine, which is, um, describing 
how something tastes and doing it in a way that's really specific and really unique. Because, you know, if I'm writing my newsletter, for example, and I'm like, oh, I went to this wine bar and I had a Pinot Noir and it, I, I'm most likely I'll be like, it was earthy and it, it had it was it had some plum notes. I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of use the same words over and over again. And I'm curious, like, is that part of your education and how does that work? Oh, definitely. And I mean, also we wine people probably use the same words over and over again too. Although like when I'm just for funsies writing about a wine, I tend to like, I'll usually try and take it like a level deeper than that. Like give it a personality or a feeling to it. Cause I feel like you can, like you read some wine tasting notes and they literally list 10 different flavors and you're like, you, do, do you, 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 you can't taste all those things all at once. <laughs> but um, yeah. So when you're learning to taste for both the Court of Sommelier, uh, Master Sommeliers, and for the Wine Spirit Education Trust, they have what they call the grid, mm-hmm. which sort of breaks it down. You know, it's, it starts with this section for color. So, you know, you look at what the color is, how deep it is, whether there's a watery rim, what the legs look like. And then you move on to aroma, like the intensity of the aroma. And then they have like all these different categories. You know, there's fruits, vegetables, flowers, spices, and then just a gajillion other things that you like. If there's oak in there, you might smell vanilla or, or baking spices. Um, if it's undergone um, 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 carbonic maceration, you might smell banana and cotton candy. Um, if it's undergone hmm. malolactic fermentation, you might smell butter. Like, so there's uh, there's this whole like sort of like list of different categories of flavors that you learn to try and like think of. You're like, do I taste this? Do I taste this? Is it minerally? Um, but then there's also like, to me, more important than flavor is like structure in a wine. Mm-hmm. Which is sorry, it's so geeky. <laughs> like, no, I love this. I mean, I actually have no idea what that even means when you say structure in a wine. So I, I want to know. Okay, so yeah, so then when you're when you're writing your tasting notes, so you do their aromas, and then um, you move into structure. So structure, you start with is this is this dry? Is it off dry? Is it sweet? Then you look at the acid, the amount of acidity in the wine, which is generally like if you take a sip, you're like, how soon and how much do I feel myself salivating, like coming from the back of my mouth? Um, it's kind of how you analyze that body um alcohol level which you know you take a sip and you're like how far does it burn and that, that'll give you yeah. an idea um uh t- in red wines you look at the tannins you're like just not just like so tannins are the things that like when you take a sip and then like you feel like you're like the moisture all gets sucked out of your out of your mouth those are tannins but then like sometimes there are tannins in a wine but like they feel really sort of like smooth and integrated sometimes they feel like really rough and choppy like sometimes they're velvety like there's so there's tannins you learn to evaluate tannins and then you go and you write all the flavors you taste not just the ones you smell and then there's the finish like so after you swallow like sort of how long does the flavor linger does it change does it evolve so yeah that's sort of the uh, learning to analyze the structure of a line portion of that that's really fascinating well i have like so many directions we can go i guess one direction i want to go in is about money (laughs) because as you were talking about the sparkling wine, and as we're just talking about wine in general, it does seem to me, I mean, there was a really hilarious New Yorker cartoon that I put on my Instagram stories. I don't know if you saw it, but it was like when you're in your 20s, it was like a shelf for the oh, wine store. Oh, yeah, I know. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. And it's like the lowest shelf is like when you're in your 20s and it's like 10 to $15. And then the higher shelf is in your, tw- in your 30s is like 20 to $30. And your 40s is like 30 to $40. And then like you're old enough to get like Pay $60. Yeah. But like, well, how, first of all, as an enthusiast of wine, how do you not spend all your money on wine? And how do you, how do you mo- modulate that? I do spend all my money on wine. Uh, <laughs> well, so I guess I'm in the somewhat 
fortunate, unfor- I don't know. Um, as a, a journalist in wine, I do get sent, a, I, yeah, I get a fair amount of free wine in, in my life. So um, there's that. Um, also, okay. I would say that like, I, it's rare when I am buying wine, which is also still frequent, <laughs> you can get really excellent wine between, I'm going to say, mm, 15 and $30. There's yeah. great wines to be found for that price point. Um, and those are, especially if I'm, you know, writing for the consumer, those are tend to be the ones I will seek out because I'm writing for people to be able to, you know, actually buy the wines I'm talking about. Yeah. But can you really taste the difference? Like if you get a $30 bottle and then somebody opens a $60 bottle, I mean, is it arbitrary or is there really a difference? Yes and no. You know, okay. So I think it probably depends what made that wine so expensive. Cause like, so like Napa cab, not to shit on Napa, but damn, they're overpriced. Uh, sorry, I'm okay. on this podcast. And sometimes the things that make a wine really pricey are necessarily like, so oak barrels, new oak barrels are extraordinarily expensive. And in the case of Napa Cab, they're like putting a lot of their wine in new oak barrels. And because, and also like the land in Napa is super expensive. So the wines end up being super expensive. Whereas you could probably find a wine that's half the price of a Napa wine just as good quality and half the price because, you know, the grapes they bought to make that wine didn't cost as much. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. No news. Oak. That's why red wines, I think a lot of times are more expensive than white is because they've put them in oak and they they, got to pay off those barrels. So similar to the Cristal, like what are some wines that for you are are worth the expense? Well, yes. Cristal is very delicious. So is the Boulanger (laughs) Legrandonet. Uh, God, I have like favorite wineries, like in Santa Barbara, there's a winery called Dragonette that I'm a big fan of. And like, they make several levels of Pinot Noir and I've had like the less I've had all of them. And like, I've had the one that costs $90 and I'm like, this tastes like a $90 wine. Okay. And so what is it about the, that $90 wine that makes it different than like the $20 Pinot Noir? Was it just the complexity the same way that like, like like going to the farmer's market and getting like a really freshly picked, like strawberry tastes different than the supermarket strawberry? Yeah. Or like, um, I mean, you know, when you go to a fancy restaurant and you're like, this was worth the this food was, well, I guess with restaurants, there's a lot more that plays in like service and atmosphere and all that stuff. But like, yeah, it's, I mean, that's the thing with wine that's also interesting is sometimes it's like, yeah, complexity, complexity is a big thing. Balance, just like perfectly balanced. I, I don't know what it is, but sometimes you taste a wine and you're just like, this is like, and that's kind of like the ephemeral thing that probably makes a lot of people roll their eyes and be like, it's not worth paying more for a wine. It's all magic tricks. And, and you're like, right, right. But, but if you care about it, then it's not. Yeah. yeah. Or like some, I mean, I definitely like, except for when I dated a simile, I'm like, I've definitely like ruined boyfriends on wine who could just buy the cheap stuff and then like, <laughs> like hanging out with me for too long. They're like, damn it I can't buy cheap things anymore have you ever ended a relationship because they brought over a bad wine no (laughs) I did have a guy I was dating once bring home um apothic and I tried to like grin and bear it and then he tasted it and was like this is awful and I was like okay I'm keeping you (laughs) Um, (laughs) that's really funny wait so the one you hate is apothic and the one that you like is dragonette I'm just trying to remember oh yeah those are two names uh, names I could name okay but I was curious because I really liked it when you talked about the Napa Cabernets being aged in new oak barrels which is what made it so expensive mm-hmm. so in terms of like other things that make wine expensive is it like that like for example the land only produces a certain amount of grapes every year and so that is why it's expensive I mean like are those the kinds of things that you think about yeah I mean 
And well, especially like, so then there's another favorite wine of a favorite wine of probably every wine person on earth, um, a wine region that tends to be fairly pricey is called Barolo, mm-hmm. which is in the Piedmont in Italy. And it's made from the Nebbiolo grape. Um, and it's a very small region. And to be uh, Barolo, which is what they call the DOCG, the Denomination de Origine Garantida, like um, they have very specific, they're like, you can only, you have to train your vines this way. You can only, you can only harvest this many grapes. You can only make this many, like, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Like uh, the amount of wine you can produce in a region, Mm -hmm. particularly in Europe or in the USA, you can, there's a lot of like, like Napa doesn't say you have to, you can only create this much wine per acre or whatever. But in a lot of regions, they do have like very strict standards like that, which again, like not to use Coke as a metaphor again, but like if you want your wine to label your wine as Barolo, all those like rules are in place to make sure that the wine in the bottle tastes like a Barolo if you spend the money on it. Um, But it is, yeah. Like, so grapevines, you could water and fertilize and like make your grapevines produce a ton of grapes, but like they're probably not going to be the best tasting grapes because um, grapevines, the way they, pro- what's the word I'm looking, profligate, the, the way they- Profligate, that's a good word. Yeah, the way um is that animals eat the grapes and spread the seeds. Got it. So if the wine, like if, if the vine, the, the grapevine is happy and well-fed and just has like just the right amount of everything- and doesn't have to struggle any, it might just, you know, it's going to be like, I, my grape, my grapes don't need to be that sweet and tasty. Like, uh, I'm just going to, I'm going to grow a lot of leaves and not worry about the grapes. Um, but if like, that's why sometimes like marginal climates where the vines really have to like just struggle just a little, they, they have to send their roots in the ground a little deeper to find water. And if they're like, if their yield is limited, they'll put like, if they're not, if people prune things in a way that they're not making that many grape berries, they'll be like, ooh, if I'm going to survive in this world, I better make my grapes extra tasty so someone eats them. Um, so that's why like keeping yields on the grapevine low will often like give higher quality grape berries, if that makes sense. Got it. So that's why they're more expensive. Okay. I have another question. This is a, t- a total shift, but oh, sure. I feel it feels very relevant to what you do, which is, okay, whenever I read a restaurant review and the review is like, this restaurant has a wonderful wine list. Like they talk about a wine list being wonderful. And I've gone to many restaurants. I mean, that's basically my, what I love to do. And I've opened the wine list and I would literally have no idea what would make a wine list wonderful versus not wonderful. So what does that really mean? And what do you, what would make you say that a wine list at a restaurant is wonderful? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, there's a lot of restaurants you go to where you look at the list and it's it's just like uh, like wine you could find anywhere that's not that great on the list. Okay. And maybe it's the stuff you'd find at the top shelf of the supermarket, but you're just kind of like, uh, wonderful. I mean, that would really, that might depend on the restaurant reviewer's taste. For me, like it would mean there's like maybe a, you know, it's not just the whites. We have a Chardonnay, we have a Sauvignon Blanc, we have a... Pinot Grigio and the red reds, we've got a Cabernet, we've got a Pinot Noir and we've got a Merlot. Like for me, it would mean like maybe there's, you know, they're looking to different regions. Maybe there's something from Sicily there. Maybe, um, you know, I do love a restaurant that pays attention to Riesling and, and dry Riesling mm-hmm. in general. So maybe they have a selection of Rieslings. Maybe um, uh, being a rosé enthusiast, maybe they have an interesting selection of rosé. So for me, it would just be like, you know, a wine list that maybe steps a little and like steps a little off the beaten path and that if you read it, you could get an idea for what this wine director, maybe for things 
you'd get an idea of what they're interested in. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So yeah. It's it like makes a, a lot of sense. It's a yeah. that has the personality, I would say. So in terms of like you, let's say you and I went out to dinner and let's say we, we were splurging and we went to Providence here in LA, which is a tasting menu restaurant. <laughs> I've that, never been uh, there. But let's oh, go. it's like it's hundreds of dollars a person. So just somewhere really fancy and they bring out the wine list and I hand it to you or you, hopefully they hand it to you because they're not sexist. Um, <laughs> oh man, you would not. Yeah. A lot of times. And <laughs> but you I'm get like, the wine list. Give me that list. Yeah. And you open it up at a restaurant like that. And what do you you do I mean like I literally just had this happen because I went to Boston to visit Craig and we went to number five park uh which is oh. Barbara Lynch's restaurant and they handed me the wine list over and it was like a novel it was enormous and it's like I don't know where to begin and ultimately we had the sommelier come over and we asked for some guidance but we really didn't know even when they guided us like what we were doing so what do you do oh gosh well for I browse uh <laughs> if, um you know if a region like like I'm a, if there's a region that I just like solidly know I'm a nut for, like I love Cru Beaujolais wines, which are on the bottle. We'll never say Beaujolais. If it's Cru Beaujolais, it'll say the subregion of it. So it's getting nerdy again. Like if I see those, like I'm like, that's something usually that's like, I mean, also for me, I look for in my price range. <laughs> yeah. What is your price range when you go out to dinner and order a bottle of wine? Oh gosh. I mean, that. You can tell us. We're not judging you. This is your passion. Oh my God. It, I mean, it varies. Like ideally not over i mean here's the thing is that wine in restaurants is marked up like this is the, also the problem for getting wine is you realize that wine in, in restaurants is marked up like four times what you if you're just buying the yeah. bottle by yourself i realized that at number five park because i looked up the bottle that we bought for like a hundred and five dollars or however much it was and it was like eighty dollars online or like seventy dollars online i was like wait that's that doesn't in a second that's yeah. not even that much of a markup. Like there's some wines you're like i know i could get this for thirty dollars and here it is for sixty wow but yeah i mean it depends on the night. Like I, in general, I probably would not want to spend more than a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, it's funny. I have like a group of girlfriends. I go to dinner with regularly and they usually put me in charge of wine. So I'm always kind of like, okay, what's everyone's threshold here? So, I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 a lot of times it depends on, you know, who am I with? What's the occasion? So you have your budget. So you're kind of looking around a hundred and then you kind of look for the specific region. So you said Beaujolais crew doesn't say Beaujolais. So what would it say? Uh, like a sub-region, uh, a, a crew Beaujolais, like that would be Morgon or Fleury Morgan. or Fleury. or um, There's 10 of them. Um, but oh, 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 the other thing I would do besides just like browsing, thinking about budget is, you know, there's the sommeliers are there for a reason. So I also like try to like learn my friend's taste buds. So like I have a friend who I know she loves like really full, hearty, really ripe tasting wine. So like I kind of like know what to look for to please her and like have another friend who like likes, you know, lighter whites. And so like, yeah, it's kind of. Yeah, when I look at a wine list, there's like so many different factors. But then also like I just like, you know, talk to the sommelier and be like, oh, hey, we're kind of like looking for something that tastes like this. Do you have like a lot of times they'll be like, this is something that I I like normally. Is there anything like that that I maybe haven't tasted that you think would be good? Um, is mm-hmm. kind of like good way to go about it? Because they might it's if, yeah. never taste it before. And you're like, ooh, it's there is like a funny like personality thing too. Like I feel like when the sommelier comes over to the table, people behave strangely like <laughs> I've been I've been at dinners with people like where they get very nervous and like they get very stiff and they're like hi I'm, I'm looking for a wine that uh, maybe would go well with the state it's like people get really scared and I think it's because they feel judged by the sommelier and you're you experience not that when judging you, you <laughs> yeah I know I mean I had a great experience the other night I went to Antico Nuovo with some Ooh, friends I'm dying to go there I see all sorts of 
pictures on Instagram that look very delicious. Yeah. And it was really a wonderful meal. And we, we were all getting pasta and focaccia and just stuff like that. And, and you know, the Somali, they sent the sommelier over and she was awesome. Like she was so cool. And she was like, I'm going to bring you out something that I'm really excited about. It's like, it was very casual, but I think people, a lot of people who don't go out to dinner that often, or maybe are intimidated at restaurants, feel like they could be getting tricked by a sommelier. Oh, I think no. there's that. Well, I think there's that fear that like, oh, this person right. is going to charge me, like, is going to make me spend a fortune. And I don't think that's really what sommeliers are after, right? No, 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 we're not. Um, I mean, some extent, I've, I've like stashed for a som at a high-end restaurant before. And like, to some extent, they were like, there were like a lot of people coming in, like they were clearly on like business accounts and we're kind of like, this person is going to be happy to buy whatever Barolo we bring them. Got it. But like, in general, here's the thing is like, sommeliers, like we, we work in wine because we love wine and we want you to be happy with and excited about what you're drinking. And also like, there's uh, maybe in the old days, maybe there was snob, but I really feel like it's changing, especially as there's like, you know, the the younger the younger guards moving in and the thing is uh, i feel like people get nervous around wine because they think they're supposed to know a lot of things mm-hmm. or that they think i'm supposed to like this like a lot of people are scared to admit that they like a wine with a little residual sugar because like you're not supposed to like sweet right. wine and it's like that's not true oh you're my, allowed God. To like my mom used what? to carry around with her <laughs> little like a little like tic-tac container but it had um sweet and low tablets in it like oh my god and she would drop them in her chardonnay oh my god <laughs> <laughs> okay that's the thing i love your <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um okay a final question uh, and then we're gonna do our um oh yeah. bonus episode i'm gonna turn around so i have i, I just got some wines okay. from psychic wines and this is not a quiz to put you on the spot this is more this is more about like how do you read a wine label like what do you look okay. at when you look at a bottle so i'm just gonna grab this is really random i'm just grabbing okay. a bottle. <laughs> So, okay. So this one, can you see on the screen what uh, it says? Yes. Martville Marani. Oh, is this a Georgian wine? Okay. So on the front, people who are listening to this obviously can't see it. It says 2020 Martville Marani. And then it says Solicourt Krakuna. And there's an image. Of, what would you say that's an image of? That thing on I, the, I don't know. On top, um, it looks like a weird person, like a, like a weird eye with a person with hair over half their face. Like I'm doing like people. This is like a Rorschach test. I don't see yeah. that at all. I see a mountain. Oh, okay. I see that too. Um, I can tell you on the bottom that that thing that's on the bottom there is called a quevery, which is an amphora that they age wine in, in Georgia underground. And it is from Georgia. On the back, it says product of Georgia. So good job identifying a Georgian wine. And is Georgia, Georgian wine very notable right now or is that the sort of like in uh, the, I feel like Georgian well, cookbooks are very in right now are they I did not know that oh yeah there was a big New Yorker article about it well I mean Georgia is like quite possibly like the birthplace of, of wine um so that's cool but like um yeah we don't I mean you don't see that much of it in the U.S. but it, it definitely especially in the natural wine um industry is sort of like been having for the last several years kind of a moment yeah I, I would say They're, they definitely especially because Orange wine or skin contact wine, however you want to call it, is having a moment. And they they do a lot of that there with their their white wines where they age them on the skin so it gets a little color. And then they put them in yeah. these things called quevery, which are like these big amphora and they bury them underground. And uh, Really? 
Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Wine in Georgia. Uh, guys, Georgia, the country, in case you're listening to this. And oh, think, yeah. Not wow, I didn't know they were doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. So on the back, it actually, I'm, I'm just going to read it because it's okay. probably better for our listeners if I just read to you than if I hold it up in front of you. <laughs> but it says, um, region Imereti. It says production volume, 1200 bottles, oh, maceration, wow. six months on full skin without stems. Bottling data, January 6th, 2021. So, and then it has the address and the email um, and it says contains sulfites and alcohol is 13.5%. So like, what are all those things tell you that like they don't tell me necessarily? Um, I mean, the bottling date, which that's interesting. They give you the bottling date, gives you an idea of like how long they were aging it in the probably in the amphora. They don't, they don't say that on the label, but like if it's Georgian wine, I would probably assume that um so bodily day that'll tell you that it sounds like it's very small production the 1200 bottles um what else what else did they say there uh uh the region uh, i'm not super familiar with my georgian wine regions i'm afraid right For all my diplomas i still need to like learn georgia <laughs> i'm it's the new yeah <laughs> it's where wine began you told us um but what about the 13.5 percent alcohol oh, what does that okay. tell you that, uh, you know, that's just that sort of like middle of the road alcohol. It's not, you know, anything above 14 is getting into like high alcohol. 13.5 for a white wine. That's like maybe a little elevated for a white wine, but it's not like, yeah, I, that, that's like a little more alcohol than like, say, I, I don't know. Um, Yeah, that's just like middle of the road alcohol, I would say. Level. So uh, if you were if you were at a restaurant and this was if you saw all this information on the list and somebody was like, "El, tell us like what do you think that's going to taste like? Could you could you anticipate at all like what flavors or like what texture or structure this might have or you just would have to taste it?" I would say it's going to be a full bodied probably in, probably in an orange wine cuz it sounds like you know they said stems off. So stems off like when people include stems in their winemaking that tends to add a lot more like that adds some tannic structure to a wine. And depending how ripe the stems are, sometimes like a green pepper note. So I'm like, it's not going to have that. It's probably going to be full-bodied if it's aged in Amphora. Like, I feel like Georgian wines, they tend to have like a very sort of spicy, not like hot spicy, but like baking spices kind of. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just the color, but I always, I think of like citrus rinds. Like, I think it's going to be, I would say it's probably like a a full-bodied white slash orange wine um, that's going to, have a little bit of spice kick to it. It might be a little earthy. Uh, amphora, I feel like, gives this weird sort of like, not weird, but like um, interesting, like beeswaxy kind of notes sometimes to them. But I, I don't know. You you are going to have to tell me when you open that wine and tell me what it tastes that like. That was incredible, though. That was that was like you know, it's like it makes me feel like sommeliers have to be like authentic, like used car salesmen in a way. It's like, <laughs> it's like you're selling people on something, but it's instead of like lying to them about like how great the car is, you're actually giving them specific information that's helping them make an educated decision. So, uh, Elle, thank you so much for doing this first part of the podcast. Oh, and my pleasure. Yeah, and it's so, not too geeky. And I, sometimes I go on a long time. I'm like, oh no, are people actually going to go? I think people are going to love it. And actually, if, if people <laughs> want to read, read you, they should look for you in Delectable. Is that the best place to find you? Delectable, yeah. That's where I publish the most regularly um, with my name on it. <laughs> and then you also have a, a podcast, The Wine Situation. Wine so they Situation. Can listen to that too. You guys can listen. Uh, Adam was a guest on that. so I was. That was so fun. Um, all right. Well, stick around. And if you guys are listening and want to hear my bonus 10 feisty wine questions for Elle Clifford, uh, stick around. All right. Thanks, Elle. Thanks.
hope this podcast got you thirsty for some wine. If you want to hear my 10 bonus questions with L. Clifford, become a paid subscriber at my Substack. That's amateurgourmet.substack.com. And you'll get to hear my 10 feisty wine questions with her, which are a lot of fun. And if you want to just become a free subscriber to my Substack, you can do that too. Again, amateurgourmet.substack.com. All right, I'll see you back here next week. Cheers. Cheers.